This morning, we are continuing our look at our study of the Holy Spirit. We've been studying Him and His ministry, what He does, who He is, all throughout the course of the past few months. And today, we're going to be bringing up a question that comes up in Scripture related to the Holy Spirit. And the question we're going to be asking and answering is, what is the unforgivable sin? I don't know if you've ever thought about this question. I don't know if you've ever looked at the Scripture we're about to look at, but we're in Matthew chapter 12 this morning, and we're going to start with verse 22. I'm going to read down to verse 32, and this subject comes up. We'll see Jesus brings it up in this passage, the, this concept of an unforgivable sin. But look with me, if you would, Matthew chapter 12, starting with verse 22. This is what we read. It says, Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How how then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for the opportunity to look at a a passage of Scripture like this this morning. We're so grateful, Lord, for access to your word. We're so grateful for the things that you revealed to us about yourself in it. And we're grateful for the understanding that we gain into good theology and what it means to live out what the Scripture teaches. Uh, Father, we see that your son, Jesus Christ, explained a variety of things in this passage related to the Holy Spirit. And we're just so grateful to be able to think about these things and and by your grace to understand them with more clarity. So we pray that by your Spirit that you'd bring us understanding, that you'd help us to to grow in our walk with you, and that we would reflect the heart of your Son, Jesus Christ, in all our interactions. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So for many of the years that I've served as a pastor, and in June it it crossed over the 25-year mark, Uh, in that time I've had the the privilege to work not only with adults, but with students and uh, teens of various ages. A a large portion of of my uh, ministry is involved serving that age group as well. And 
admittedly, and I think anyone that, that serves in, in youth ministry or children's ministry could acknowledge this, admittedly there are some challenges that come with serving that age group. Um, but there's also tremendous blessings. Tremendous blessings that come. Like when you, when you volunteer your time to serve with children and youth, I'm so grateful for so many of you that, that do that here in our church family. Uh, because it's truly a, a wonderful ministry and an opportunity to serve the next generation. And one of the blessings that becomes quickly apparent if you choose to volunteer in a capacity like that is that during that season of life, students usually make lessons and discussion times very interesting because they have a lot of questions. Questions that sometimes we at different seasons of life haven't thought about asking in a while. And they'll ask questions, and I think sometimes the older we get, the more embarrassed we get to ask certain questions because we start to think, oh, by now I should know the answer to this, and so we just don't say anything. But when you're working with young people, when you're working with teenagers, they don't have that feeling. They just ask whatever's on their mind. They just ask whatever is on their heart. And I remember while leading the youth ministry at a previous church, one of the girls who was in her mid-teens at the time she asked me a question during one of our lessons that had been troubling her for years. And she asked me this. She said, can you tell me if I have committed the unforgivable sin? She said, can you tell me if I have committed the unforgivable sin? Now, that's not a question you receive frequently. And to my recollection, I don't remember ever receiving that question prior to that. So I asked her just to elaborate a little bit on what, why she was asking this, why this was even something in her mind. And she told me that somewhere along the way, her grandmother told her that it was possible that she had committed it because of a careless way that she spoke of the Holy Spirit sometime during her childhood. And so that was what was in her mind that from her grandmother. Her grandmother had told her that, something she was wrestling with. And so she said, it's really been bothering me. I just need to know, can you tell me clearly, have, have I committed the unforgivable sin? Now, what would you say if somebody asked you that question? How would you answer that? If, especially a young person, you know, a young person clearly troubled by it. What would your answer be if someone asked you that? Would you have an answer for them? Would you, would you be unsure maybe what to say to them? Um, and, you know, where does this idea of committing an unforgivable sin come from? You know, why, why do we have this in our thinking? Is that, and I could even ask this, is it something that we're likely to commit today? Is that something we're likely to commit today? Or was that only for an earlier season of history? Well, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus spoke of a sin that would never be forgiven. You know, when we look at his words there, he clearly speaks of a sin that will never be forgiven. But before we examine that specific statement, I want to look at the context in which he spoke these words, because there's a little bit of backstory we see in Matthew chapter 12 when we start with verse 22. And starting with verse 22, going down to verse 24, this is what it says. Let me read this for us again. It says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So that was their response to Jesus in the midst of this miraculous act. Now, in this world, there is a variety of spiritual activity, all kinds of spiritual activity that's taking place 
And I'm convinced that most of the time we miss it. We don't always notice it. I think sometimes we overlook it. Sometimes maybe we ignore it or don't want to think about it because it could be a little uncomfortable at times to, to think about it. I don't know if you were like me and watched a whole lot of scary movies when you were growing up. Bad idea, right? But I went through a kick at one point growing up where I was watching a whole bunch of those things. And uh, so some of those things end up in your mind and kind of color your thinking. But the truth is, when you look at what Scripture tells you uh, about the, the spiritual activity that's going on in this world, we're, it, we're shown in Scripture that, that Satan is actively trying to influence people and cultures and governments. You see him actively doing that throughout the course of human history. He tries to in, influence individual people, tries to influence the culture in which we live in. He tries to influence governments or governmental leaders, and he wants us to rebel against God, and he wants us to, to blaspheme the name of God. He would be delighted for us to do that. And Satan, we're told in Scripture, he works in partnership with a large group of fallen angels that we typically refer to as demons, and together they seek to come against humanity because we've been created in the image of God. And when you look at some of the other things that Scripture reveals to us about Satan, Satan seeks dominion over this world and resents the fact that dominion was offered to Adam, our original forefather. So these are all sorts of things that are, are taking place in the spiritual battle that's described in Scripture. And the truth is, present day now, if our eyes are open to see it, it's not difficult to find demonic activity and demonic influence all around us. Without trying to sound like a horror show, without trying to sound creepy, I believe that that's a very real thing. And, and I will say that I have regularly encountered people that I believe are demonically oppressed. Now, they may not be possessed, but I, I have seen this in people's lives in a variety of ways, and I think you have probably as well. And I think that if you look carefully, you could also see demonic attempts to influence our culture through audio sources, through video, through the written word. There's all kinds of examples we can see if you look close enough at our culture, and people buy into it all the time. People buy into it all the time, and if truth be told, there are seasons of our own lives where we've bought into it too. It's only with the clarity that the Holy Spirit gives us that we will see through it or beyond it, because naturally, if we're just relying on our natural eyes, we will easily buy into that sort of thing. But uh, it, you know, in our secular culture, you can see just demonic influence behind so much nefarious activity that's taking place. And I think for many people, they minimize it because either it sounds like maybe like a fantasy or as sometimes Scripture describes uh, spiritual realities, many people in this world look at those things and they just consider them folly. Just sounds like a fairy tale. Just sounds like folly to some people. And I think Satan and the spiritual forces that work with him are more than happy to be ignored. And they're more than happy to be dismissed because I actually think that gives them more opportunity to operate without being detected. And so you have that taking place behind the scenes. And, um, you know, I recently, even just earlier this week, I, I watched a documentary that highlighted the ways that, that human institutions have tried historically to silence the voices of those who follow Jesus and want to make his gospel known. And in the documentary I was watching, it, it drew many parallels between the attempt to silence Christian voices in the 1600s, particularly in the country of uh, Scotland at the time, and it drew some parallels be, between that and some of the examples you could see even in our present day. 
And I, I have to say, it's amazing to me to observe the, the level that institutions and leaders and even governments will go to try and silence the message of the gospel, even though many people claim it's just a fairy tale. So I'm thinking, if it's just a fairy tale, why do you go through such great pain and such great effort to try and silence it? Why do you care at all? I think the reason, I think the reason that there's any care at all is because deep down we actually know the kind of change that Jesus can make in a person's life and in a culture and in a nation, and that's actually what they're trying to prevent. And when you look at the Gospels, when you look at you know, Matthew chapter 12, where we're looking today, and when you look elsewhere in the Gospels, you'd actually see a lot of examples of demonic activity that was taking place during the course of Christ's earthly ministry. And so you had very frequently you have demonically oppressed and demonically possessed people who were brought to Jesus for healing. People would have them either in their families or just in the, the neighborhood or, or uh, the culture at the time, and they would bring them to Jesus for healing. And when you look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, we're told that a man who was both blind and mute because a demon was oppressing him with these conditions, that this man was brought before Jesus and that Jesus completely healed and restored this man's sight and his ability to speak. And I look at portions of Scripture like that, and I try and put myself in the position of the people that were experiencing these miracles. And could you just imagine being that man? What a relief that would be. I mean, have you ever dealt with something that you just felt like, is there any cure for this? Is there any fix for this? And naturally speaking, you think, oh my goodness, there's, there's you know, it just seems like there's no human cure. I mean, during the summer, has anyone gotten poison ivy this summer? I got a small patch of it. My son, Jay, who works with the tree service right now, got tons of it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was able to put like a cream on the, the poison ivy that I got and it took the itch away and I was fine. But he had it so bad that he had to get other medication that was stronger to just try and heal that up. Now, could you imagine just enduring that without the help of modern medicine and and trying to, you know, find a quick solution to that. And the truth is, there are plenty of medical things that we deal with that there's no cream or pill that can fix. And so for this guy in Matthew chapter 12, he's got, he's got two of those conditions that, that no cream and no pill can just fix. He can't speak, and he can't see. And the Scripture tells us that it's actually the result of demonic activity, demonic oppression in this man's life. And so... The scripture tells us in Matthew chapter 12 that Jesus looks at this guy, sees what's going on, and he completely heals him. And the man is now able to see, and the man is able to speak. And can you imagine what a relief that must have been, not only for the man, but for those that love the man? To be able to see him restored in this way, what a moment for rejoicing that would have been. And, you know, again, whether you put yourself in the position of somebody being healed in a context like that, or if you were one of the people that was privileged to witness it, you know, how do you suppose you would respond if you were privileged to witness that miracle taking place? You got to see with your own eyes, Jesus heal that man. What emotion would that stir up in your heart? What do you think you would feel? What do you think you would say? Would you rejoice about it? Or would you get angry about it? Now, I know our reaction in this moment as we're reading this story and and hearing these events, we think, how can anybody be angry about that, right? How could you possibly get angered at seeing a person who was dealing with so much difficulty 
How could, you, how could you get angry at seeing them completely restored? And, you know, if you're seeing Jesus do this for the one guy, would you want to see him do it for more people? Or would you want to see him, hey, like, you know, keep those powers under wraps. Don't overuse that, right? It might get old if you overuse it, right? Scripture tells us that the crowds who witnessed this miracle, they were amazed, and they started wondering something out loud. And what they started wondering out loud was they wondered if Jesus might actually be the promised son of David who would lead them as Messiah, who would lead them as king. They're wondering, is this the Messiah? Is this the son of David? I mean, look at the miracles that he's doing right here in front of us. This, this has to be him, right? This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the one we've been looking for. They start audibly talking about this. They start wondering this in their minds. But the scripture also draws the contrast, and it tells you what the religious leaders were thinking and what they were murmuring amongst themselves. The religious leaders of the day looked at this miracle, and they attributed what Jesus did to the power of the devil. That's how they saw this. They claimed that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons. That's what was in their mind. That's what was in their heart. That's the type of things that they were murmuring to each other in their, in their smug attitudes. And I'm always amazed when you look at portions of Scripture like this, and you can see the arrows that get slung at Jesus verbally and mentally, uh, but I'm always amazed at how artfully Jesus would respond to his critics. I'm always amazed by that. He always gave the perfect response. I guess it kind of helps when you know what people are thinking, right? Because it kind of helps when you know what's in the heart of humanity. And when you look at his responses through the gospel, that would be an interesting study, just looking at how Jesus responded to different people. When you go through the gospels, you watch him sometimes responding by speaking an insightful word. And then other times he would respond to people and, and some of his critics with something confrontational, where he would say something directly confrontational and kind of call them out on something. Other times he would just allow them to observe him doing something like writing on the ground with his finger and would put them in a position where he wasn't saying a whole lot and they had to try and figure out what's going on here as they were eager to criticize him. And then sometimes he would speak in a parable. And he said the reason he would speak in a parable was that those who were meant to understand would understand and that the meaning of the parable would be hidden from those who it was meant to be kept from. And here you see Jesus responding to these Pharisees who are thinking negative things about him healing this man. But he responds to, the, to them in a very specific way as they're attributing this miracle that he's done to the power of the devil. And when you look at verse 25 down to verse 29 of Matthew 12, Jesus said this. So it says, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. By the way, if you're a history buff, who borrowed these lines in American history? Do you know? Lincoln, right? Lots of people have, but Lincoln, you know, during the time of the Civil War, he borrowed those lines. It's funny, I, I recently saw something that was quoting this and it attributed it to Abraham Lincoln. I'm like, okay, go back a little bit further. You got to go back a little bit further. Lincoln got that somewhere. This, was, this wasn't original content for Lincoln, but I'm glad Lincoln said it. But Jesus said it first, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand and then Jesus said, and if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? 
And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. So that's how Jesus decides to respond. So he directly tells them the truth, but he also gives some examples to help them understand what he's speaking about here. And he started by reminding them that a divided kingdom comes to nothing, and that in general, division precedes destruction. So if you want to divide some, or destroy something, usually division comes before the destruction. And if Satan was casting out Satan, he would be under, undermining or, or uh, you know, just just destroying the foundation, basically, of his own kingdom. So Jesus was saying here, it doesn't make sense for, for him to be casting out uh, demons by the power of Satan. When Jesus performed miracles, there was a much greater power at work. And that's what he's about to explain here. Now, when you look at Scripture and you see what Scripture reveals to us about God, we're shown in Scripture that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that trinity lives in perfect union and perfect fellowship and has for all eternity. And when Jesus carried out his earthly ministry, he didn't do so alone. When you look at what Jesus was doing, he wasn't doing this alone. His actions and his timeline, that was ordained by the Father. And the miracles that he was doing, they were all empowered by the Spirit and enacted by him. So you see the Father directing, you see the Spirit empowering, and you see Jesus enacting. So you see the Trinity at work in these actions and in this ministry and in these miracles. And from the inauguration of His earthly ministry, when it all starts, we see the members of the Trinity present. We see the Father present, we see the Spirit present, we see Jesus present. And all three are active in the work that Jesus is accomplishing during that era. And it's interesting, when you look back at Mark chapter 1, it sets up for what we're about to see in the, in the, the Gospels here. But in Mark chapter 1, starting with verse 9, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And that sets the tone for Christ's earthly ministry. You see the Father, you see the Son, you see the Spirit at work together in what Christ is accomplishing. So when Jesus was performing miracles, he wasn't acting alone. This wasn't something he was doing alone. This wasn't just of his own will or of his own power. He wasn't acting alone. He was acting with the Father and with the Spirit, and he was being directed by the Father and empowered by the Spirit. And so when the Pharisees were criticizing this miracle, as they see Jesus do what he's doing here, what they were doing was they were attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil. They were seeing this with their own eyes, and they were attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil. And Jesus had something to say to them about that, and I'm certain his words were not welcomed by the religious leaders of the time because those men despised him. And Jesus said this, when you look at verses 30 to 32 of Matthew 12, he says, "'Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, 
Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So again, when, when Jesus was performing miracles, he wasn't acting alone. And when you look at what Jesus tells us throughout the course of Scripture, he invites us to be united to him by faith. And when we place our trust in him, we become part of the eternal family of God. But those who are not united to him by faith, what they do is they take the default position that Jesus was speaking of here, and it's a default position of being against him. And it's not a position of being ambivalent toward him. He describes it as a position of being against him and opposed to him. And instead of walking with him, what he, what he describes here is this idea of scattering in the opposite direction. And Jesus also made it clear in these words as he's speaking this to the Pharisees, he makes it clear that humanity is being offered forgiveness of sin. He speaks of forgiveness. He speaks of sin being forgiven. Uh, our, our rebellion against the will of God can be forgiven, which is an amazing thing. just speaks to God's nature that he would forgive us for that. Uh, the times when we spoke poorly or flippantly of Jesus can be forgiven. Uh, I happen to notice uh, over the past, I would say over the past 20 years, really, more and more and more, um, just like popular comedy, throwing the name of Jesus around like it's no big deal. Maybe you've noticed that as well. And I think, you know, if people really understood who Jesus is, obviously they wouldn't do that. But if you don't know who Jesus is, then anything for a cheap laugh, I guess, is, is considered acceptable. But you look at that and you think, all right, well, when I see people doing that, it's a good reminder pray for that, that person. I mean, because essentially before we knew Christ, that's what we were doing, maybe not with our lips, but we were certainly doing this, that same thing in our hearts. And Jesus says even that can be forgiven. It can be forgiven. He's willing to forgive it. But then he's very clear that there is a sin that cannot be forgiven, and the Pharisees had just committed it. Now, what specifically did they commit? What specifically did they do that cannot be Forgiven. Wouldn't this be a great cliffhanger to ensure good attendance next week? Should we just stop here and then pick it up? The Pharisees had spoken against and blasphemed the Holy Spirit. That's what they had done. They had spoken against, they had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Now, at first glance, you might look at their words and you would see what they said. Actually, it describes like the fact that they were thinking these things, right? And, and, uh, and at first glance, you might say, well, like, when did they do that? When did they blaspheme the Holy Spirit? When did they say anything about the Holy Spirit? I don't even see record of them even mentioning the Holy Spirit in, in what they were talking about or what they were thinking. But please keep in mind the ways in which the earthly ministry of Jesus was being orchestrated. His miracles were being directly empowered by whom? The Holy Spirit. So consider the depth of of the hatred for Jesus that these Pharisees must have possessed to be able to see, imagine the privilege they had. They were able to see God right in front of them, right? They see God the Son right before their eyes. And here he is fulfilling the ancient prophecies that spoke of him. And he's following a divine timetable orchestrated by God the Father and he's healing the sick and the demon-possessed by, the, by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. That's what he's doing. And they're seeing this with their own eyes. 
And they're looking at what Jesus is doing here, and they're attributing the miracle that they just witnessed to the power of the devil. They're not rejoicing over it. They're trying to find a way to critique it or criticize it or put it down. There is no more that can be done for a human heart that gets that hard. A heart is that hard. There's nothing else that could be done for that heart. Because you look at this, they weren't even being required to believe in something they hadn't seen. You know, I mean, when you think of your faith and my faith, and when you think of the words Jesus said after his resurrection, he said the fact that we would be blessed because we believe, well, things that we have not seen with our own eyes, right? That's the essence of faith, trusting the Lord for things we have not yet seen. So we haven't even seen these things, but here in this context, this group of Pharisees, they weren't even being required to believe in something they hadn't seen. This is right in front of their face. They can see this. With their own eyes, they witnessed what took place. They couldn't deny that it took place, so they tried to deny the power that was behind it. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because some people throughout the course of human history have said, you know, if only I could see God with my own eyes then I would believe. Do you ever hear people say things like that? If only I could see... No, if you could see God with your own eyes, you would die. That's what Scripture reveals. You would die. So be grateful that he, His glory is veiled from us right now in our unglorified state. Uh, but I, I've heard people say that. I've read people say things like that. You know, if I could just see God with my own eyes. Or some people don't even go that far. Some people will be like, you know, I don't even have to see Him with my own eyes. If I could just see a miracle. If I could just see a miracle with, with my own eyes... Maybe then I would believe. And you look at this portion of Scripture from Matthew 12, and it basically goes to show that it's possible for the human heart to reach a state of unbelief that isn't even moved to repentance and faith by seeing God show up in person and perform a miracle. What more can be done for a heart than that? If, if there's a heart that's in that spot that can look at God do a miracle and say, I'm watching the power of the devil at work, as far as I understand it, that's what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, to commit the unpardonable and unforgivable sin. What they did was they saw Jesus in the flesh, so God the Son in the flesh, performing a miracle, and then attributed that miracle not to the power of the Holy Spirit, but to the power of Satan. And Jesus said, there's no more that can be done for you. That right there, that's the unforgivable sin. And so... Going back to the conversation I had with that teenage girl earlier in my ministry, she asked me that question. She was concerned that she had committed a sin that was unforgivable, and, and uh, so I explained this to her. And it's kind of neat. It's interesting, I guess, to say uh, my family, we've maintained friendship with her, and now she's well into her adulthood. She's somewhere in her 30s now, happily married, mother of two beautiful children, but at least twice since that initial conversation that I think I had with her, with her, maybe when she was probably about 14 or 15 years old, at least twice since that initial conversation, she's brought that subject up to me multiple times just to make sure, just to make sure she understood it correctly. It's come up multiple times even since then. So I want to ask you a question, and I hope you'll give some thought to this. With all this in mind, what we've just looked at from Matthew chapter 12, this concept of an unforgivable sin, I just want to ask a question that I, want, I just want you to think about it related to our own inner dialogue, related to what's going on in your own mind or in your own heart. But when you think back over the course of your life, 
Is there something from your past that you've been treating like it's unforgivable? Is there something there that you look at and you think, yeah, it's unforgivable? Or maybe you think, yeah, maybe God can forgive me of this, but I don't think I can forgive me of this. Or maybe you think the opposite. Maybe you think, yeah, I guess I can forgive me of this, but I don't think God can forgive me of this. So is there something in your past that you look at and you say, yeah, that one was pretty bad. That must be unforgivable. And you've been basically living your adult life like you are unforgivable. Like there's a part of your mind that thinks, nah, I'm unforgivable. Do you let yourself think that way? No, do you think that you've, you've done something that Jesus couldn't possibly forgive? I want to show you something that I hope will encourage you. It's the Apostle Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul's background, he was someone that would have been high-fiving with the the Pharisees at the time and, and would have completely agreed with them. If he was in that context, it seems very likely that he would have blasphemed the Holy Spirit as well. If he saw that miracle and all that, I think by the grace of God, he was kept from being in that context. But Paul was someone that spent the early part of his adult life completely opposed to Jesus, blaspheming Christ's name, opposing the work of God, and going about things basically just thinking he was better than everybody. And then Jesus opened his eyes to see the truth of the gospel, gave him the grace and the mercy that he needed, forgave him of his sin, made him a brand new person. And then you have the Apostle Paul thinking back over the course of his life, and the mercy that God had shown him. And he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, when you look at verses 12 down to verse 17, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I, acted, I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, come back to this line. He says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me is the foremost. So he's saying, I'm the worst sinner, feel like the worst sinner that's ever walked this planet. But he says, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Nobody makes it through life mistake-free. You have not been able to make it to this season of your life mistake-free, and neither have I. None of us makes it through life mistake-free. And I would encourage you, as you look at a portion of Scripture like this, make sure you're preaching the gospel to your own heart. Don't call something unforgivable that Jesus has called forgivable. As far as I can tell, 
The unforgivable sin would require you to see Jesus in the flesh during the course of his earthly ministry, performing a miracle, and then declaring that that miracle as an act of Satan. So as far as I can tell, you and I, living in the context that we live in right now, don't have the capacity to commit that unforgivable sin. Meaning, whatever sin you have committed, and we've committed collectively every category of sin, whatever sin you've committed can be forgiven. The only unforgivable sin for us in this context would be to come to the end of our earthly lives having rejected the gift of salvation that Jesus Christ is offering us. Having been presented the gospel, having been been given the opportunity to receive salvation, to receive the mercy, to be a recipient of the, the perfect patience of Jesus that he delights to show to sinful people like us, and to reject it and just say, I don't want it or I don't need it. That's the spot we're in. That would be unforgivable. You know, on the other side of our earthly life, if we reject the offer of salvation, the Lord will honor our decision. If we reject it, He'll honor it. If we accept Him, He'll honor it. And here's the thing. We don't know when the end of our days will be. We have no idea. I, uh, I got a, a notice yesterday on Facebook that someone that I had the chance to speak at this exact time eight years ago, someone my own age, might, have been, might be like less than five years older than me, if he's older than me at all, found out, and I don't, I don't know what happened, but just very abruptly this past week, he passed away. And it just reminded me, it's like, there's no guarantee that any of us live any certain age. There's no guarantee. None of that is guaranteed to us. So we don't know when the end of our days will be. So if you're thinking about these things, if you're in the hearing of my voice as I'm sharing these things this morning, I just want to encourage you to trust in Jesus Christ and receive his cleansing today while that option remains available to you. Because if you're hearing this today, that option is still available to you. The option to receive Jesus as your Savior, the option to to have whatever the biggest mistake of your life happened to be, to have that completely cleansed or wiped away from your record, that option is still available to you. Receive that option. Receive Christ as your Lord. Receive Him as your Savior. Watch Him do miraculous things in your heart and in your life. And spend the rest of your days with a testimony just like the Apostle Paul expressed, where you say, you know what, yeah, I crossed some big lines. But then Jesus found me, and He helped me to see things I wasn't seeing. And He cleansed me of my sin, and He gave me a brand new life. And now I live as one who gives Him praise. And I look at my days as a gift and as a privilege to just honor him more and more and more. Receive that cleansing while that option is still available to you. If you're hearing what I'm saying right now, that option is still yours. Receive that from Christ because he offers that to you and delights when you receive it. I think that's a wonderful thing for us to think about on a day when we look at a portion of Scripture that legitimately describes an unforgivable sin and then to recognize that you and I are in a spot where Christ has given us every option possible to be completely forgiven of whatever sin we've committed. Receive that from him today, I pray. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of your word like this 
And to see the things that were taking place in the generation in which you accomplished your earthly ministry. We're just so grateful for the things that we're able to see in this portion of Scripture. Father, we're grateful to be able to see what your Son, Jesus Christ, spoke and the things that He has revealed and the ways in which your Spirit demonstrated His power. Father, we pray that for each of us that we would continue to go through our lives as people who are convinced that we are unforgivable. We are forgivable. And you offer that forgiveness to us, just like you offered it to the Apostle Paul, just like you've offered it to the generations that came before us. We recognize that, that there are plenty of people who do not receive that offer. They do not accept that offer. It's probably fair to say that most people don't accept that offer. But Lord, we've had the privilege to read your word together. We've had the privilege to look at what it means to actually experience the gift of salvation. We've had the privilege to hear the Apostle Paul's testimony of how you were patient with him and how you graced him with the gift of eternal life. So Father, we pray that you would do that for each of us today. That if there be anyone in the hearing of my voice right now who as of yet has not received the gift of salvation by trusting in Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would come to know you, that they would walk with you, that they would no longer give their allegiance to the things of this world or the things of, this, of the devil that, that seek to, to pull them in a direction that's in opposition to you. We pray that today would be the day of their salvation. And Lord, we're just so grateful for that. And Lord, if we've been preaching a message to our own minds or our own hearts that treats any aspect of our life like somehow that was the line that we crossed that was unforgivable, we pray that you'd correct our theology on that. We pray that you'd correct our understanding so that we would understand what your word actually describes as the unforgivable sin and realize that what we've committed, the things that we've committed during the course of our earthly life, they're not that. They are forgivable. So, Lord, we submit them over to you. We seek your cleansing. We pray for your forgiveness. And we pray that we would lift up our heads as men and women who have been forgiven and rejoice in the forgiveness that's been offered to us through Jesus Christ, your Son, who took our sin upon himself at the cross and bore our shame at the cross so that that wouldn't be something that we had to continue seeking to bear or seeking to hold up under that burden. It's already been taken care of for us, and we pray, Father, that we would understand that and receive that through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much, Lord, for the privilege to look at your word together today. Thank you for revealing it to us and speaking it to us. And by your grace, we pray that we would walk as men and women who are made new creations through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.